This show is brought to you by Growth Australia, market leaders in designing and creating workplaces. Welcome to Let's Talk Growth, Brisbane's number one people and property podcast. Join our fantastic guests to talk about innovation, marketing ideas, and technology that you can apply to your business to facilitate growth. Hi, my name is Daniel Boys, and I'm the host of Let's Talk Growth. Today, I'm joined by the dynamic duo, Ben Deverson and Lauren Phelps. Ben is the founder of Lorganized, who are a boutique management consultancy that offer exclusive services to the legal profession in Australia and around the world. Ben has a 25 executive career, of which over half has been managing and leading professional services firms. Lauren is Lorganized dedicated culture and wellness advisor. She has worked in the legal industry since 2006 and is a well-known criminal defense lawyer. Lauren is also an accredited mental health first aider, another example of her dedication to seeing change and supporting her fellow practitioners. We hope you enjoy the episode. Ben, Lauren. Dan. Thank you very much for joining me this afternoon. Absolute pleasure, Dan. Good to see you. And I would just like to point out for the listeners and some of the viewers that it is a Friday afternoon. So I'm extra grateful for having you both here today. I know what Friday afternoons can be like, but uh, I really appreciate it. So thank you very much. Oh, thank you very much and for having Gil, us. And Gil, thanks for the alcohol in front of us. Absolutely. No, just kidding, just kidding. Shout out to uh, producer Gil there. <laughs> He's got a way of loosening up the guests. So that's fantastic. Thank you. We've got a great one today. It's the C word, partly the C word, culture, which is a big one. And I think we've all spoken offline before this that culture is a thing that can be bandied around quite quite easily and it's really important to define that and find out where the rubber hits the road with culture and, and what the tangible benefits are and so we want to talk about that and then we want to take a bit of a change of pace and talk about how mental health wellness and all of those things tie into culture and people's well-being in the workplace and then specifically in the legal sector as well where you both specialize so what I thought it would be good to do is we've had a bit of a high level introduction at the front end, but I'd really like to give people some context with the organized business, where you guys come in and what value you've been adding to your clients, particularly over the last couple of years through these turbulent times. So Ben might throw over to you first, mate, just to give us a bit of a an overview of the organized business and then we'll we'll move through from there. Thank you, Dan. So yeah, Lorganized is now uh, nearly three years old, September twenty nineteen. So uh, was when I launched it on my own. And I guess where it came from initially was probably twofold. One was I'd been operating as a CEO of a law firm for about five years. And one of the actual staff there said to me, you know, what you do, Ben, you do reasonably well. Have you ever thought about consulting? Reasonably well. It's well, good that she gave you a, <laughs> she instilled you with confidence. Yeah, no, <laughs> I'm, tr- I'm trying to be a little bit modest. No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, look, it did sow a seed uh, and through a number of, let's call it sleepless nights and a few a few drinks, let's be honest, I thought, no, stuff it, I'm going to do it. And I'd always been a, uh, an ad- admirer of those who decided to go it on their own. Anyway, so Lorganise was born and uh, my, my view was that I had an enormous amount of empathy for small law firms mm. and principals that ran them because mm. it's a bloody hard gig. Yeah. And running a law firm, regardless of what you think of lawyers and and what areas of law they practice in, it's a business. 
and lawyers are great lawyers and Lauren's been a principal of a law firm herself. Uh, lawyers are great lawyers, but they're invariably, and I'll generalize here, they're not great at running businesses sure. uh, because their passion is the practice of law. Yeah. And the gap that I wanted to fill was that management consulting on running a law firm effectively and all the elements of it. And and as this today's C word is, we focus a lot about t- team culture. Yeah. And we have a bit of a mantra at Lorganize, which is teams with good cultures just do it better. Yeah. And we think that that, that phrase better extends into a number of things, in particular financial results. Sure. Uh, which at the end of the day, businesses need to be viable, survive, they need to thrive and become better, grow for their people and the owners, of course. And getting to that point you made, Dan, about what we do, we, we really ask the question from day one, and, and that is, what do you want? Yeah. As a management consultant, I've always thought that consultants bring their model to a business and say, here's how we work. Yeah. I wanted to disrupt that by saying, well, what do you want? You know, I would ask a, a firm, what is it you want out of this business? Some people want to sell their firms. And I, I had a call today from a lawyer who wants to sell her firm. What do I do, Ben? And we work to connect them with potential buyers or whatever. Yeah. Or we have a firm that's a startup. I'm leaving a large practice. I want to start my own firm. Help me out. And then we ask them, okay, what do you want from your practice? Do you want it to be Google size? Or do you want it to be a small suburban firm that just is what we call a lifestyle practice? Sure. So we want to just align personal goal with what we can do. Just on startups, and Lauren, I want to come to you in a second as well, because something Ben said there resonated with the discussion we had. So I will circle back to that. With startup businesses, particularly in the legal sector, what are a couple of things that you're seeing are the sticking or the friction points for those businesses really getting off the ground? Is it is it common two or three things, or is it is it different person to person? No, I, I think I'd say it's different person to person. That being said, there are a few things. Sure. I think a lot of lawyers who want to leave a large practice, and a lot a lot do, put their own shingle out as we like to call it. A few things, what would come to mind? Funding, getting a business going, mm-hmm. managing costs mm. until you start getting cash flow revenue. Yeah. And I say cash flow, then revenue. So you can issue as many invoices as you like. Are your clients paying them though? Yeah. So we, we have a, a process that we call our cash flow golden rules, where we try and ensure that firms are being paid sooner because there is a gap between work and paid. You know that in your business. So cash flow and funding would be one. Yes. Two would be articulating your product. Mm. And that would be, what are you actually offering the market? How's that differentiating from Mm. competitors? But equally, how are you then turning that into inquiries through marketing and how are you turning that marketing inquiry into a sale? Absolutely. So we we push them down what we call our revenue strategy. So I think that those two things are imperative. Everyone can come out and practice law and practice law well, but they need to take a step back and say, we've got to actually market a service yeah. and we've got to have buyers accept that. And that's just something that many people, particularly new startup firms, have never done. Absolutely. And I, I suppose they're often, my perception of law firms is they are, a lot of them are defined by their branding of the firm themselves. So for a senior person in those businesses to then break away and kind of break free of those shackles and start their own identity can be quite daunting. And, and one of the things that, that Lauren is, is great at in our business is, and we're trying to really 
change the bra- the business of law, and that is lawyers are trained to practice law all mm. the way through their career. Mm. There are a lot of things that come either inherently, but one of them is is certainly that we find a significant gap in is is understanding how to how to develop the business, how to be focused on sales. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and lawyers can be a humble beast. Mm. And they, uh, it's a difficult question to ask a client to, here's my, my proposal and mm. I want you to accept it. Yeah, absolutely. Again, we try and coach our clients around that and to be confident around their product, what it costs, mm. and get it recovered. Absolutely. So it's one of those things that, as I said, there's some exceptionally gifted lawyers out there. Yeah. And we try and fill the gap to be exceptionally gifted business people. Yeah, fantastic. And Lauren, that's probably a great, way to bring you in as well with the discussions we've had around probably the goals of someone when they're studying law versus when they actually get into business. So could you just tell us a little bit about that? I'm sort of putting you on the spot there, sure. but I loved <laughs> I loved this sort of that analogy you gave when we caught up about about that journey. Yeah. Thank you, Dan. And look, there is a big gap that occurs. Most students, I can probably safely speak for most, when you decide to study anything you are passionate about that area Mm. or you're interested in it and that's where you maybe want your career to go. You don't sign up for your law degree thinking, my gosh, I can't wait to build. I can't wait to sit at my practice management software and record every six minutes of my day. That's not where you begin. Yes. But that gap occurs because then traditionally, and we work with clients at Lorganise that are shifting away from that tradition, you do, you have to build for every minute. Yeah, of so people, like students go into, into law for one reason, but then the expectation is quite different once they hit the ground running. Definitely. And I suppose that's probably a really good indicator of how we've gotten to where we have in a broad spectrum of businesses where that leadership structure and that management structure in place is judging and rewarding on those billable hours, which rightly or wrongly, I'm sure um, you agree wrongly, that it's shifting. And there's a couple of different ways that businesses or it, it, a lot of it is, is led by the employees themselves as well, are almost redefining their purpose in the workplace. And I think the course, the leadership course that you're running, the trust-based course with your clients is really helping to make that tangible and make those outcomes a little bit more tangible. Absolutely. So can you just delve into that a little bit about who would need that course, what some of the content is, and then what some of the the key takeaways are from that process? Um, To be honest with you, I think anyone it would be a candidate for the course. And, and the concept around our course is, so I, I've been a student of Patrick Lencioni, who's an author, chairman of the Table Group, US-based consulting firm. He wrote a fantastic book called The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. The number one dysfunction, which is essentially the platform of dysfunction in any workplace or any team is a lack of trust. Sure. So we developed a trust workshop that we believe is suitable and tailored for law firms, it is really a, a, a deep journey into understanding each other almost at a cellular level. Mm. Now, that sounds probably a tad intrusive, but in order to gain trust and keep trust and develop trust within people, we need to know each other intimately. Mm. And I've run some amazing workshops in the past that 
have had such profound change in firms and, and I get a little bit passionate about it because the change you see over four hours is phenomenal. Yes. And we ask people for their deepest fears mm. and some of the most amazing comments are made by, let's be honest, some fairly strong ego lawyers who are vulnerable and open up and their team see that and they see a human being. Uh, and often they see deeper spheres or um, talents that they don't know about. Yes. Everyone walks into the office wearing suit and tie or whatever equivalent and they see a lawyer. What we're trying to do with a trust workshop is see human beings mm. who have shared experiences, shared fears. We're here for eight hours. There's 16 hours we're not. And what we're trying to do is break down that barrier of that person sits in that office, I don't know them versus I want to trust and work with this person. Anyone could really do with it. But to be honest with you, the best candidates would be teams that are probably struggling with a little bit of communication internally, a team that perhaps from a personality perspective has a number of, dare I say, introverted people yep. who are more focused on on perhaps their own work and their own influence. But it really is a powerful workshop. Be honest with you, Dan, it's a hard sell. Yeah. People think of a trust workshop as standing on a platform and falling back and having seven <laughs> people catch you. It is so not about that. The high ropes course. The high ropes course. Of those. You know, it, it's, and it's, it's so not. No. We ask, as I said, we ask people to talk about a talent that no one knows about. Mm. And people talk about being an archery champion and then someone says, oh, my son's an archery champion as well. Yeah. And all of a sudden these connections are drawn. Building commonality. Yeah. And I think it's... Yeah. It's so important because you're right, the culture piece now has almost moved from it's not now enough to have a table tennis table in your breakout space and beers on a Friday afternoon. Thanks for the beers, Gil. You've really got to have that trust piece mm -hmm. and that really has got to come from the top down because people, particularly in the last two years, and we did it in our business, you're looking for that rudder, that, that compass that's going to point north and that's going to steer the ship kind of forward and it's important that the people you're looking up to and up towards are accessible in that way so mm -hmm. i think when we start talking about culture differently and your course seems to do that and it's measurable then i think it will get a lot more buy-in because we all understand that at the end of the day there has to be a return on investment a business has to be a business it's almost changing the purpose or it's changing the goalpost slightly to make sure that it's people first and then the knock-on effect from people first is that the billable hours are through the roof because people are engaged, people trust each other mm -hmm. and are coming to an environment where they can thrive and gives them a renewed purpose, I suppose. You're right, Dan. The billable hours are a side effect. Mm. That's all they are. It shouldn't be the focus. Uh, and just to, to ensure that there is some degree of, of connection between trust workshop and output, I mean, the, the cultural shift towards a team that knows each other well but equally backs each other. That's what we're actually trying to get. Yeah. And some of the deepest fears, things that pop out, just to give you a, a very you know, recent example, is, is when someone talks about a deepest fear about losing a child, losing a parent or mm. something like that. And then we understand as a team that that actually may be occurring to that person rather than not knowing what that person's going through and therefore seeing their billables go down because yeah, sure. they're focused on something else in their life. Yeah. When the team knows, oh, John is currently having a family tragedy, let's support him through it mm. rather than looking at it without any lens at all and saying your billables are down. 
I've seen people do that and I've seen it happen in front of me yeah. where if the, the trust had been built initially, John could have said, oh, Dan, I just need to let you know that my father's very ill. Sure. And I need to spend some time with him or help him with hospital visits or whatever. And a business that can do that and allow someone to be vulnerable enough to bring it forward mm. and then be supported by their team, that's a team that's got a strong culture. Mm. Otherwise, John's going to see his billables come down. The partners are going to be sitting there going, what's going on, John? Your billables are crap. You're now on a performance plan. It's a totally different context yeah, absolutely. when it could have been dealt with so differently. Mm. And that's when we can see, Ben, as well, a decline in that lawyer's well-being and in their mental health. Absolutely. Simply because they've not had the confidence to be able to raise it with the the firm. Yeah. Whereas if you've got, no matter the position of yourself um, within the firm, if you've got that confidence to tell someone else that something is going on with you, knowing that you'll be supported, you're going to be a loyal employee as well. Yeah, absolutely. If, if you're, however, being criticised because your billings are down and that's because you haven't had the confidence or you've had some fear about disclosing why, you're probably likely to walk at some point. Definitely. And I think it's it's something that's not just specific to the legal sector. I mean, we see it all the time and I've been in sales now for a number of years and you do see it in in different teams. And if there's introverted people in the team, it's it's about giving different stimulus, I feel as well, and understanding how different personality types receive and respond to information. And if someone um, isn't, you know, the loudest in the room and pitching and this and that, that's completely fine. Often you, you, you can only have a couple of those people and I'm sure I annoy enough people in the office, but it's, it's really trying to change the stimulus, change the output, change the challenge almost for everyone in the team. So you've got the common goal that you're all working towards, but each individual knows exactly where, which cog they fit into and you all feel you're pulling together in the same direction. You make a really good point, mm. Dan. And one of the things we do with our Trust Workshop is we actually run a personality profile first without any judgment at mm. all. The personality profile is designed to have others understand where people sit in the personality profile. So we use what's called DISC. DISC, yes. There are others like Myers-Briggs, but we find DISC is very powerful for a team. So we can see that Lauren's here and Ben's here, and this is how Ben likes to operate, and these are things that make him tick. This is where Lauren operates. These are things that make her tick. Now, when Lauren's in a particular situation, she's going to tend to respond this way. Mm. Ben's going to respond differently. And it's about understanding that. It's not mm. about making someone change their personality because the trust workshop is, is, is very difficult for some people, particularly very private individuals who don't like to bring personal things to work. We're actually trying to extract that, not to make them uncomfortable, just to ensure that the team can get to know them better. Yeah, sure. um, but personalities, in my view, are not to be changed, they're to be acknowledged mm. and embraced. As you say, we use the phrase, right people, right seats. Yeah, that's if a great one. You can't have a very introverted person, in my view, in a role that has them requiring to work with 75 people every single day. Of uh, course. Speaking on a, on a milk crate, it's just not going to be- Setting them up to fail. Correct. Yeah. Whereas if you find the right people and put them in the right seats, in a firm, you might want to have someone who's running a, a project. You want a, probably a more dominant individual to be pushing the agenda as hard as possible. You know, you just got to find the right people and put them in the right seats. And we find the Trust Workshop can help that too for law firms. Absolutely. Absolutely. Fantastic. And we, we've touched on it already, but I think it's probably a good segue with all of that to talk about 
the knock-on effects of well-being in the workplace and how can we as leaders or as future leaders, even young people in the business, how can we identify well-being? How can we have that are you okay chat? And I know, Lauren, that's something you're very passionate about. Mm, I am. And I do I do believe that anyone can be a leader. Mm. You don't need to have a title or a position within a firm. Anyone can have leadership qualities. And I think if anybody is showing them, those in leadership positions should be embracing that yeah, and absolutely. taking them on the journey. So, and, and it's wonderful to have a variety of people in leadership positions. I think the well-being of people is the absolute essence of a law firm. Mm. If your people are happy to come to work, you don't always have to be happy to come to work. It's, it's the legal profession. It's stressful. There's days where you don't want to go, but that, that's in the industry. <laughs> um, but your people have to be aligned with those values and yeah. want to come to work every day with the goals that sure. your firm has set, with their own individual goals as well. Mm. And people aren't going to be functioning at their best if they're not well. Sure. And there is, and I'll, I'll throw a statistic at you. I'm I've come with a couple of numbers, but we'll see how many we no, work our way through. No, that's good. We like numbers. Um, this could was... be our first statistic on the podcast. Oh, no. Now there there's pressure go. to make sure I get it right. No, we'll clip, <laughs> clip this up. We'll... No, no, it's all good. Uh, a study was conducted uh, last year by PwC, so not specifically into the legal profession, but a- across a number of industries. Mm. And we now have 37% of employees, and it was over 1,200 responded to mm. this survey. 37% said they look to their employers now as the main source of mental health support. Wow. So so yeah. that number is is reasonably high, I think. This is a great number. 91% of respondents believe that the company's culture should support mental health. Yes. So that's pretty much everybody thinks yeah. that their company should be supporting their mental health. And so. do you think the uncertainty and the turbulence that we've seen globally in the last 24 months has has played a role in that? Like if we were mm-hmm. to do those numbers five years ago, would they, I know mental health is more, ex- I shouldn't say more accessible, that sounds terrible, but it's, people are really encouraging others to communicate a lot more about it, which is fantastic. Yes. And that uncertainty that we've all had the last 24 months has definitely, I'm sure, created some anxieties with going back into the workplace and going back into that team environment when you've been used to potentially being more efficient at home or being someone who prefers to work at home Mm. and that integration coming back into the office has probably given people a chance to reset and think about priorities and and different things. Absolutely. I I do agree that people have sat for two years now Mm. thinking about those priorities Mm. and I think there is a responsibility on leaders and on management to acknowledge that Mm. and then be very mindful when you're having those discussions about returning to work or be mindful that some people may need to ease in, that you can't just send an email on a Friday saying, right, Monday, everybody's back. You actually have to take into account. And that's why a personality assessment like the DISC is a really great thing to do, knowing well, how each individual is going to react mm. to that. Because again, you're not going to be getting the best out of someone if the poor thing is having panic attacks all day yeah, because sure. it's their first time in the office in mm. you know 18 months. Mm. And are there some signs that leaders who might be listening can look out for or what, what's the best way to start to think about how you might not do an audit of your staff, but really after listening to this, go away and think, okay, 
what's our action plan forward? This is something we've been talking about for a while. What are the things to look out for? What's a great way? Or what are some things that you can implement to, to get the ball rolling? Mm. I, I think if, if possible, an audit or a health check on your mm. firm is a great place to start. And sure. we do actually, I'll do a little plug for Organise, we do really? do conduct health checks. And I'm, I've been producing some resources around how to conduct that check mm-hmm. and how to look at your culture currently in a firm. But it's, again, knowing your people and knowing when to look out for something that's not right. Mm. If someone is normally very punctual and you've noticed in the last fortnight, you know, three or four late mornings, for example, that's probably an indicator that something else is happening yeah, with sure. that person. Sure. So, you, they really do. You can't have a global approach, I think. No. And I know there'll be leaders sitting there listening, thinking, well, how on earth am I going to be making money when I'm spending all of my time watching yeah. my staff? Yeah. It, it just has to be done. Yeah, absolutely. Because if they're unwell, the, the dollar is going to continue to drop. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. If I could add to that, I think that's spot on. And the only thing I would add is leaders have to be showing the example and be vulnerable themselves mm. and be willing to raise issues around their own mental health, their own well-being, to see that it's being normalized. Mm. And to not not feel like as a leader you need to be completely unbreakable. Stoic. I think Absolutely. a lot of leaders take on that stoicism approach and it's certainly not about calling leaders out, but it's understanding as well that they're in a position where they've got to drive the business because if they don't, there's been turbulence and, and the wheels will start to come off. But it's probably redirecting some of that stoicism and that effort and that value that they put in every day and acknowledging different parts of the business that they could be applying that to to get a, a better, more effective result as well. Mm. Absolutely. Mm. And I think leaders have got a role to ensure that they don't impart stress on their people. Mm. But I think there is a fine balance where you can just demonstrate that that being open about mental health, being open about your own vulnerabilities is an important thing. And one of the, the simplest vulnerabilities to show is to put your hand up in the air and say, I need help. Yeah, that's the toughest I don't thing, have time it? to finish this. Can someone help me with this because I don't know the answer? Hmm. Stoic's a great word, Dan, because too many leaders think they have to have the answer for everything. Yeah. And I think someone willing to put their hand in the air and say, I need help is a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing, Working with our clients all the time is it, it's so important to get to the bottom of, as you've said with your courses, what do you want? Mm. Where are we going? What are the goals? What's the three-year plan? What's the five-year plan? And then making sure we're a lot of business we're dealing with are wanting now to put people first and mm. using the office space as a almost a catalyst to drive that new relaunch of culture or values or things like that, which has been really positive to see in what we do. But as I was saying to Lauren before we came on air, it's important that that management level or that underlying vision has also been refurbished as well it's not good enough to just put everyone in an open plan office with a pool table and beers and say right we're collaborating you do need that structural piece that understanding that retrust and all those types of things Mm -hmm. so we've got a little bit past now but i do want to circle back the trust course when someone has gone through that process with you are there follow-up points afterwards or are there measurements post that because i know a lot of different courses can be done and implemented and then people go away and it's all back slapping and jolly and then you kind of get back into that nine to five or for lawyers six to six or you know and it kind of just fizzles out so are there things that leaders can put in place 
not for accountability, but just to make sure that they're always measuring themselves against what they've learned in that course? Yeah, we do, Dan. And we do some pre and post assessments on the trust Great. Uh, workshop. So there are some surveys we, uh, we take our clients through uh, prior and post. But one of the things, well, one thing I, I actually despise is, is seeing businesses in any industry go away, do an offsite event, feel good about themselves, come back to work and nothing changes. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we do as, a, as an example to try and continue to build trust in teams is we have a suggested agenda for every single team meeting. The agenda always starts with a personal professional segue. Now, what that is, is that if we start a meeting, we say, my personal win for the week was on the weekend, my wife and kids, we went to Southport, had a wonderful day on the beach. People talk about those things. Mm. My professional win for the week is that I landed a new client and it's a, you know, working in criminal law, I've got a new client who's got this particular uh, matter. It's going to be a big trial. It's going to be great for myself and the team to learn on this matter. Mm -hmm. It takes 15 seconds per person. Uh, And you go around and people start talking about particularly their personal wins. They'll mention family, they'll mention friends, they'll mention hobbies. So we we continue to try to build that that level of knowledge and trust in each other. Uh, And that's a weekly thing. Yeah, sure. But also we look at little subtle things like during meetings we'll ask people to raise any issues that uh, would be considered a risk for the the business. Mm -hmm. Now is the safe space to raise it. Because one of the things we do find is that people sometimes feel unsafe to, to admit errors and we want them to do it. You know, if, if the business is at risk due to potential negligence, and negligence in law is not often uh, deliberate, of course. Sure. You might miss a date. Mm-hmm. Missing a date in law is a significant issue. Date management is something that the law societies talk about a lot. Yep. You might miss a filing time, time frame or something like that. I missed a date last week. The client's now at risk of missing a limitation period. Mm. And that's a significant issue. We want people to talk about that mm. rather than hide the file in the ceiling tile yeah. and hope it goes away. That's a so, great saying. Yeah. It's, it's actually a, a hide real the file story. In the real ceiling story. Tile. Yeah. Mm. And, wow. you know, we want people to be vulnerable and say, I've made an error and have the team get around them and, and fix it mm. rather than hide it, dig the hole deeper. The firm gets in trouble, the individual gets in trouble. Again, that's a culture we don't want to see happening. We want a culture of complete openness, mm-hmm. celebrate the good stuff, deal with the bad stuff as quickly as we can as a group. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, we, it's it's not like we do surveys regularly. We just want to continually mm. tap into things like regular agendas, looking at the same things, um, bringing out that personal professional win, bringing out potential risks, Yeah. just talking. It's a two-way street as well. I mean, it's leaders can do these great things and can implement and really work on themselves. But I think the individuals and myself included, you can always work on how can I improve myself as well? So we do want to put onus on leaders to be great leaders and to listen. But I think if you're not in that position yourself, it's always still important to analyze yourself and think, well, can I handle that situation better? Is everything really there for me to succeed? And I just need to now step up myself as well. So it's a really important balance of not chicken and egg, because I think it's got to be led by leadership. Mm. But I think then there's a responsibility from the team as well to acknowledge that and really lift and contribute. Mm, And and yeah, and we do leave the trust workshop with what we call agreed behaviours. And those things include things like openness, communication. uh, And we really try and enforce that, that, that it's okay to put your hand up and say, I need help for any reason. You might have a personal issue where you need more time at home mm. or 
you know, some people, their lives are their pets. Yeah. I need time to, you know, grieve for my lost dog. Yeah. I lost two dogs in 2017 and it threw me for months mm. and I needed some time. And I personally went into a depression over losing two dogs within a month. Yeah. And I had a workplace where I could put that up and people knew about it. So it's things like that. People have got lives and, and you know, it's, it's okay to put your hand in the air and say, I need help. Absolutely. And Lauren, I know you do a lot of lecturing with the Queensland Law Society on mental health and wellness. What are people hoping to achieve from that? Or what's the sort of the key messaging when you're doing those talks? Is it all around those types of things, the trust? Yes, Dan. So the um, presentations or the lectures that I do are targeted to almost their principles in sure. law firms. So yeah. this is the last, uh, it's a course that they have to complete. And once they get that certificate of completion, they can go out and, you know, hang their shingle and become yeah. a law firm principal. So it's a variety of experience and ages of lawyers um, that undertake that course, actually. And the focus of what I speak to them about is understanding mental health and well-being in yourself mm-hmm. and in your people. As well, and even if it is someone going to be a, a sole operator, but they have perhaps one secretary or one junior lawyer working with them, or it could be that you're going out to to start a hundred people firm. It's the same same yeah. principles, same yeah. applications that you need to look after yourself mm-hmm. and be able to look after your people as well. So a lot of it, I encourage people to continue to learn mm. because there are so many resources out there. You just need to put some good time aside to educate yourself on those sorts of areas and to know when to look out for people if they aren't coping well, I guess. But I also do try and instill in them. And look, the course goes over a five-day period and they have to learn a lot around billings and around business and financial management. Mm -hmm. And then I come in on on day four and say, put people first. (laughs) Hang on, we've just billed a million dollars yesterday, Lauren. What are you talking about? Yeah. (laughs) Who are these people? Put your people first. And I also really stress to them that they have this beautiful opportunity to start afresh. Mm. They've got a clean whiteboard. They've got a clean piece of paper to create an amazing culture. Yeah, fantastic. Again, regardless of size. And it can be by being a transparent leader from the very beginning and encouraging your people. So you touched before on the fact, Dan, that it's not, there is still a responsibility on lawyers to do their own checks and still want to be be striving. So as a leader, modelling that as well, that it's great to do your own internal sure. introspection and and be striving all of the time. So, oh, fantastic. So, if we bit of a crystal ball now, the legal industry is understood to be a little bit not left behind at all. It's, there's a lot of great things going on, and there's a, a number of companies that we work with who are really doing apps and delivering legal services differently to their clients. But traditionally, is a good word, it is a very traditional profession. Mm. What does the legal industry look like in 5, 10, 20 years' time? Are there innovations or what are the things that you think could really assist principals break free of those traditions, still acknowledge them but work differently, free things up? Is it consumer-led still? Is it is it legislation-led? Is that still kind of giving people constraints? It's a good question. Both Ben and I are sitting here <laughs> looking at each other with eyebrows wasn't raised. wasn't on my agenda now, so I wanted to throw <laughs> one in there. It's probably a topic for its own podcast, <laughs> yeah. Dan. Um, oh, that's a cop-out, Ben. Yeah, it no, is. Just- it is. 
It's a tough one because there's there's obviously the rule of law is the rule of law and there's a certain sure. way that that has to go. And maybe we, we've touched on it today that it is that acknowledgement of teams. I mean, in a lot of other industries, the role of the executive office has changed. So what the corner office represented 10, 20 years ago of an aspirational, I want to get to that corner office, that corner office for many professions is now a shared meeting room or a Zoom room, or a kitchen breakout. Legal profession is still very much traditional in that sense. So maybe it's a, a changing of values of those spaces and how teams interact with each other on a daily basis. Mm, that's um, a good point. Mm. And it is it is a slow industry to change. Mm, mm. Um, and one of the things that I love about the law is its tradition. Yeah, absolutely. And that it is just so steeped in, in tradition. But look, it took a pandemic to get our court system to start embracing video appearances yeah. and telephone appearances, for example. So I do think that we will see that continue. Sure. Um, there is a lot of discussion out there and, and there are certainly advocates for and against that. Um, so that is something I think that will remain. Getting everybody over the line to the point of loving it is yeah. probably a different mm. different discussion. But that's one thing I think that we will see. I do think that we'll also see a continued blend of working from home mm. and working from an office as well. But each business is just so different. And in yeah, the law, there are so many different services that are being provided in so many areas as well that some firms may not need an office. They don't mm. need that physical mm. existence. Others do. So, it's it's an interesting time. And I know that that's a bit of a, a grey answer for you. No, there. it's great. It's great. And it's the, there's no right or wrong answer for it. It's I think... If I could add one little flavour, Dan, just to bring back our own themes, you know, people talk about the the prevalence of mental health in the legal profession and, and there are so many factors that will probably, let's say, contribute to that. And again, generalising, but some of the things like billable hours and targets and all those various things, I think we're going to see a continual trend away from billable hours. Yeah. I think the last benchmarking report I read, 81% of, of billed invoices that leave a lot law firm to go to a client come from a time-based approach. Yeah. So, you know, four and five bills are still going out in six-minute units. So, I think that's going to continue to trend downwards. Sure. Uh, and I think we're going to continue to see the the influence of boutique specialist law firms. Yes. And I think that to use the the medical analogy is you've got your GPs and you've got your specialists mm -hmm. and the specialist law firm, be it in an area of law, let's say employment law or criminal, or you might have a, an industry specialization. So, you might have a construction law firm or you might have a uh, a law firm that's purely focused on, what's another industry that might have a law firm focused, Lauren? Um, oh, personal injury. Personal injury, yep. But there are some very, very niche firms now who are operating in like body corporate or strata law. That's a unique selling point in itself, isn't it? If you're the Absolutely. specialist at what you do and you're not diluting yourself across yeah. a number of different disciplines, mm. you're really honing in on yep. the intricacies of that particular and the, skill. Exactly. And, you know, that just to bring back organized bit of a plug, we're very strict about we only deal with lawyers. Mm. And I have several conversations, probably twice or three times a month. People say, why don't you expand into other professional services? I'm like, no, we are organized. We're mm. only dealing with the legal profession. It's very unique. It's a very regulated profession. Mm. We know it exceptionally well. It's different to others. We're going to stick with that. So, And where did your passion for law come from? Um, well, look, I've spent most of my career in professional services. Mm. So, out of, uh, you know, after my military service, I have, I've been out of the army for 20 years now. So, of that 20, I'd say 
15 have been in professional services. The last five before starting law organizers in a law firm. And I think I saw a significant difference between that and what, what was my accounting firm environment. Mm. So law firms are very, very hard to run. They're extremely highly regulated. So the Legal Profession Act or the various, well, they are, it's consumer protection legislation. Mm. At the end of the day, it's consumer protection legislation. So it's uniform law down in the southern states, which I think WA is now adopted. It's very regulated. Yeah. It's extremely hard to operate a law firm under that legislative environment, throw in people, throw in culture, throw in clients, clients, yeah. throw in the market, the competition. Yeah. You know, how many family law firms do we know that are out there? Yeah. It's a saturated market. It's a very, very hard thing to operate a law firm. So it came from empathy, Dan. I just thought mm. that operating a law firm is exceedingly hard. And I thought, you know, we did, what, the firm I was in, we were very successful. And I thought, I'm going to throw that into helping others. Mm. And that's where it came from. That's brilliant. And then Lauren, mm. same with yourself, you mm. started off in criminal law. I did. So how has that, that transition come about? And Well, I, I fell into it, Dan. Mm -hmm. I fell into criminal law and I fell in love with it within about 45 minutes yeah. of, of my first day. I got to attend a matter in court, got to visit the cells under the courthouse and didn't know this world existed and, mm. and loved it. But just listening to Ben speak then, a, a penny has dropped for me. I love helping people too. Yeah. And that's what I loved about my job yeah. in criminal defence was helping people get through that process. I'm not practising anymore, but I'm now in this position where I'm helping lawyers mm. with my experience and with my knowledge and... I'm loving that too. So I think that's where where the the passion lies is being able to to help people get through. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, it's fantastic. Well, look, I think we've we've given it a good nudge. We've covered some topics. We've gone around the houses, but I think there's some really great takeaways there for people. In particularly, if you are a leader in a business in any business, not just law, then there's some really good things that you can take from today as far as some steps that you can put in place adversely if you do need to speak to someone or acknowledge that potentially you do need some help or that one of your staff members needs some help then there is lots of resources out there where that's available absolutely at the end of the day yeah. it's giving people that purpose is really and trust alongside that is really going to drive that culture which we're saying the knockoff effect on that is going to be profitable businesses that's that's the message dan wins all round mm. which is great and one one last little plug for Lauren, and that is that oh, he's he's used he's uh, used uh, enough uh, his plugs in it. This one's this for Lauren, so I'll three. allow it. That's a freebie. I'll then. allow it. This no, one's for Lauren, I'll and, allow and it I, too. I think that I was remiss in not mentioning at the start, as our cultural and wellness advisor, Lauren's also a mental health first aider as well. Mm. So mm. that to me is a great opportunity for anyone to reach out to Lauren. You know, we've got a real passion, Lauren and I, about mental health and the legal profession, mm. and it has some unfortunate statistics which we won't go through because I'll probably get them wrong, but they're high. Mm. Mm. That's why we've invested in, in Lauren to be yeah. that contact. If anyone needs to reach out, get in touch. That's what we're, why Absolutely. she's got that qualification. Mm. And can I say I'm very good at it because Absolutely. I love it. I, I really do love now that passion being able to, comes across. Yeah, to help brilliant. someone. So. Just before we finish. One you, last you, plug. You, yeah, you've, <laughs> you've drawn me back in there. He's got a tagline. <laughs> One last plug. Now, with the legal profession, is it the billable hours? Is it the hours of work? Are there a couple of things that you think are leading towards those statistics being higher than potentially the average for other workplaces? 
we've got a, a couple of features within the profession mm. that as a combination lead us to have much higher statistics, sadly. Uh, one is that it's a very non-collaborative industry. Yeah. We do have some firms out there doing really great collaborative work, but mm. they are a minority still. Mm. It's litigious. Yes. So, it's a very adversarial environment. So, people are paid to fight mm. with other people. It's an industry where to be a good lawyer, you have to be worst case scenario mm. because if you're not, sadly, you're probably not giving the best advice. So, you need to be putting yourself in the position of what's the worst that's going to happen mm -hmm. and lawyers need to be really careful that that doesn't then start to seep into themselves mm. by sort of being in that position all day, every day. The pressures as well of the billable hours and sadly, we still have this culture at the moment where we glorify stress. Yeah. We glorify long hours mm. and we glorify just pushing through or suck it up or get over it, those kinds of things. Yeah. So, Like Ben said before, being able to remove that taboo and talk about well-being and mental health in a really positive light mm. is something I would, would love to see that may eventually help bring those numbers down. Fantastic. I think that's a great point to finish on. Thank you both so much. And thank you to our amazing listeners and viewers. Don't forget to subscribe. And I'll also put Lauren's details in there and organize as well. So if anyone would like to reach out, then we'll, we'll make sure we've got Please some do. details there. So thank, thank you. you both very much. Thanks, Thanks Dan. Dan. Thanks, Lauren. Thank you, Ben. Thanks, Gil. Thanks, Cheers. Gil. Thanks, Gil. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. And remember, if you've got any questions about any of the topics or you'd like to join us on one of the podcasts, please contact us via talk at growthaustralia.com.au. See you next time.